Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers and all other lovers of the Hebrew Scriptures. I'm Rachel Wren. <laughs> and I'm Tim McMinch. This week we'll be covering Joel 2, 23-32, the lectionary text that's scheduled for October 27th, 2019. We're taking a break this week from our little sort of uh, ladybug-sized mini-episodes to bring you a full-on Locust Swarm episode with a special guest exegete. That's right. We are so pleased to have with us today Reverend Dr. Rolf Jacobson. He is the Professor of Old Testament and the Alvin N. Rodness Chair of Scripture, Theology, and Ministry at Luther Seminary. He's been with Luther since 2003, and he is known for his humor and biblical interpretation. With Craig Kester, he also developed and supports the Narrative Lectionary. His collaborative projects include the Book of Psalms, Invitation to the Psalms, Crazy Talk, a not-so-stuffy dictionary of theological terms, and then the second one, Crazy Book, a not-so-stuffy dictionary of biblical terms. And his most recent book is also the Homebrewed Christianity Guide to the Old Testament, Israel's In-Your-Face Holy God. His voice can be heard on two weekly preaching podcasts, Sermon Brainwave and The Narrative Lectionary, and he also sings The High Lonesome with a Lutheran bluegrass band, The Flesh Pots of Egypt. All right. It's all true. It's all true. (laughs) I, I found it on the internet, so it must be. A survivor childhood cancer, he is a double above-the-knee amputee who generally wears a bicycle and a smile. He lives in St. Paul, Minnesota with his beloved wife Amy, their children Ingrid and Gunnar, and a cat who thinks he is a dog, and I can testify to all of that as well. Personally, we would recommend to you, our listeners, either his book, The Homebrewed Christianity Guide to the Old Testament, Israel's In Your Face, Holy God, or his invitation to the Psalms, and we'll link you to that on our website. Rolf Jacobson, welcome to First Reading. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, our listeners don't know this, but you and I have a long history together, Rolf, going back to when I was a tiny little baby seminarian, and uh, you were, and I'm guessing still are, one of the most beloved professors at the seminary. Uh, I used to be your uh, research assistant, and I always remember uh, that first semester, people would ask me, what are you doing? I was like, oh, I'm Rolf Jacobson's research research assistant. And they would say, how did you get that job? <laughs> so it was always one of my, my cool factors on, on campus at seminary. Well, it was... I was very lucky to have have you and to see uh, that you've gone on in Old Testament. It's been great to be colleagues all these years. Yeah, well, and that's you know that's what started me on this this first question because I was remembered thinking, well, that's one of the reasons I kind of started thinking about biblical studies as a career was watching you and the other Old Testament professors at Luther have so much fun with what you would do. Which you know, seminary classes can be a lot of things, but they're not always necessarily fun and funny. <laughs> so that leads me to our first get to know you question, which is besides yourself. Who is the funniest person in biblical studies? Uh, well, it's Mark Thronfeit. It's, yeah, uh, of course. Who is a just retired colleague at Luther Seminary, and you know him. He is the funniest person in biblical studies um, and the funniest teacher I know, which kind of makes me angry. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> anybody who can make up, he makes up songs to teach Hebrew, like a song about the difference between the um, the Bagat Kafats and the different Dagishes. Oh, yeah. Dagish Lene, you're the dot. 
in the midst of the god kafat. There you go, to rub it up. I'm awfully fond of you. There you go. You need to be squeaking a little toy while you sing that. Oh, he would do it with guitar and everything. It was fantastic. <laughs> now, Rachel, you, you mentioned uh, that Rolf is one of the creators of the narrative lectionary which is a kind of alternative option to the revised common lectionary, which we're basing our texts off of for our podcast here. Rolf, could you tell us just a little bit more about the narrative lectionary, kind of where that idea came from and who's using it now? Well, it was, uh, it was an idea I didn't know I had. Um, I, I was speaking to a uh, church convention uh, in May of 2010, and I said— um, why wouldn't one congregation try preaching kind of through the whole sweep of the biblical narrative from September through May, um, uh, both preaching and teaching in the adult, in, in the, you know, in the curricula of the congregation? Um, and I, I just meant it sort of as why wouldn't one person try that? Uh-huh. And, uh, Dan Smith, a recent graduate came up to me and said, um, I just talked, uh, 12 congregations into doing it. What's oh. next? And I said to him, I said to him, into doing what? Because, you know, I had talked for like an hour and I had said other things too, I think. And he said, preaching through the biblical narrative from September through May, what's next? And then I realized I, I had committed myself to supporting uh, this uh, project. And then um, by the time September started, 40 congregations had decided to do it. And it continues to grow, and now it's we're in our ninth year now. And it's so what it is is it's now a four year cycle. It's um, the heart of it is preaching one gospel in order from from Christmas through Easter. That's what uh, I myself was part of a congregation that's that has done it, and that's the heart of it is the gospel story in order in liturgical time, um, rather than chopped up and 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 spread out out of order, you know, a, across the year. Um, and mm-hmm. then in the, so in the fall, you preach the Old Testament, uh, Christmas to Easter, one gospel, uh, and then, um, then early stories and acts and Paul's letters. And then summer, you do non-narrative stuff. You do Psalms and Job and, and Revelation and things like that. Yeah, it's not easy to pick those texts, though, is it? Well, we picked essentially 64, the, what we think are really sort of 64 of the most important narrative um, Old Testament stories, uh, and then you get in the summer you get other non-narrative uh, stories that, uh, and texts that are really important. I mean, the problem with Revised Common Lectionary is um, with the well, there's lots of problems with it actually, but um, <laughs> one of the problems, like just with just for example, with the way the Old Testament stories, uh, the majority of readings or the book from which the most readings come from is Second Isaiah, the poetic material from the Israel's exile. And um, it's it's so predominantly from that text, and it's just really hard material for somebody without um, an advanced degree to even understand. You know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sometimes yeah. it's even really hard for someone with an advanced degree. Sometimes to even it's understand. even harder <laughs> if you know too much, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, well, speaking of how difficult text can be, that sounds like a great place to jump into Joel too. Uh, so, uh, would you mind reading the text for us, then, Rolf? Uh, sure. O children of Zion, be glad and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the later rain as before. 
The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will repay you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the grasshopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I send against you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I, the Lord, am your God, and there is no other, and my people shall never again be put to shame. Then afterward I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, even the male and female slaves in those days. On them I will pour out my spirit. I will show portents in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Thank you, Rolf. So as is typical in the Revised Common Lectionary, we just got plopped into right. the middle of something going on here. So maybe we can back up and just get some of the context of what's going on in the book of Joel as a whole. And maybe there's is if there's anything that we can say about the supposed historical context of, of Joel. What do we want to say about that? Well, you know, the, the, it's almost impossible to date the book of Joel. Unlike the other minor prophets, I think basically all the other minor prophets are solidly dateable. Uh, minor prophets being the 12, the, the 12 shorter uh, prophet, prophetic books from Hosea through Malachi. They're called minor because they're shorter, not because they're less important. But uh, it's the only one of those I think that's not solidly dateable. You, you can tell by the, uh, the place of Joel, it comes between Hosea and Amos, uh, which are the two oldest of the minor prophets. You can tell by the fact that the editors put Joel there that they assumed it was a, an older book. For a variety of reasons, um, most scholars today think it's probably post-exilic, but if that's not for sure. The book seems to be in response to what an invasion of locust, which is described as an army. You can imagine in the ancient world um, what a problem this would be that the locusts come in uh, year after year, perhaps, um, right at harvest time and devour, uh, especially the barley at that time, uh, which would have been the most important cereal crop that saw Israel through the winter. Mm -hmm. And you can't go to the grocery store to get what you need. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I, I think it's a it's kind of an appropriate time in our historical moment to talk about that plague of locusts with just how crazy the weather was this past year for farmers um, with heavy rains and then really late planting and uh, just, I think, a deep awareness right now of how precarious when lives are based on agriculture and really based on agriculture, how precarious that can be something like a, a plague of locusts or too much rain at the wrong time. Um, that will probably resonate in some ways. Yeah, well, I mean, it wasn't that long ago um, that we had to deal with that in North America. Um, so the the great American novel from my ethnic tradition is called Giants in the Earth, were you ever forced to read that, Rachel, as I was a child not, I, or, or I've heard of it, though, at yeah. Pacific Lutheran? Um, no. <laughs> Giants in the Earth um, 
In fact, I'm looking over, I can see it right there on my shelf. Um, but it talks about the Norwegians coming and settling in South Dakota. And um, the, 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 first, uh, the first winter it describes, and, and then that, that, the, that first uh, just getting through, you know, how hungry and getting through the scarcity, um, having, um, you know, breaking the sod, uh, planting, and the, the first uh, plants coming up, and then it describes as they were harvesting the first field how uh, an incredible whole dark cloud covers the horizon and down drops um, an entire cloud of locust and just devours an entire field and then it gets up and moves. And so it wouldn't like these these plagues of locusts, so they, they wouldn't come through and totally destroy everything. They would kind of hit one field and then skip one. And, and uh, but so... Uh, it was uh, in, for the scarcity in the American frontier. It was also a huge problem, and so we can still, uh, you know, relate to that today. It wasn't really until modern um, agriculture, uh, both with its um, pesticides and also with its hybrid seeds, mm-hmm. that uh, we kind of were able to more reliably gather a harvest. Yeah. The um, you know, one of the interesting things to me about Joel is that. Um, I think if you're going to preach on, on, on Joel on, on this Sunday, um, you kind of have to preach the whole book. Oftentimes you get one text like this dropped in the middle. You, um, you can either use it uh, to preach alongside the gospel story or you can, or you can kind of preach the whole book. Um, uh, and depending on the context, you know, like, like, you, like Rachel, you were saying, if you're in a place that maybe is having a successful harvest or a not successful harvest, it would it may work either place. Uh, it's the end of October, and so people are uh, their crops are either in or getting in, depending on what the crop is and where they live. But um, but so assuming that it's in that kind of context, um, Joel has a very positive view of worship, which Amos and Isaiah don't. Right. So if you think of Amos mm-hmm. five or or Isaiah five or Isaiah 1, a really negative view of uh, what goes on in worship. Um, Joel is very positive. Uh, so Joel announces, you know, in chapter 1, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders. Um, and then it calls for the nation to worship and repent, put on sackcloth and lament, blow the trumpet in Zion. And mm-hmm. then out of this uh, call to repent and have a worship service that Joel credits, you know, very strongly, uh, believes in um, comes the promise then the good news that starts actually in chapter um, 2 verse 21 it really starts I think yeah. the the oracle the, the, the passage should start but then it's then it turns to the good news that on that day after you know after the repentance here's the response uh, here's the good news is that, that there will be rain and there will be a harvest and I will repay you for the years of the swarming lo- locust and so on. Yeah, I a couple of thoughts of what on what you just said. I don't know why the text starts at verse twenty three and doesn't include verses twenty one and twenty two, where the the soil is told to fear not and the beasts of the field are told to fear not, and it it really kind of builds this beautiful picture of abundance on behalf of all of creation. Um, and I I would encourage preachers if you if you can to just include those first two verses, um, verses twenty one and twenty two, because they they really 
build up um, a view of what's happening in this text, which is not so human focused and I think richer for um, for their presence in the text. Yeah, I agree. That I mean, I suppose the reason they don't start it there is because um, it's odd uh, that it starts out by addressing the animals of the field and the pastures, <laughs> uh, pastures of the wilderness. It does that obviously poetically um, as a, as a means of um, announcing that the, the salvation coming incorporates um, the entire domain of creation on which Israel is dependent. As 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 of course are we all? Uh, you know. And I think the other thing that I would draw out in what you just said, too, is is you were talking about farming communities in late October, getting a sense of their harvest. I think a, a, a sermon about abundance and scarcity in late October would probably befit almost any community. You know, if you're talking businesses, they're coming to the end of the year, the close of the <laughs> year. Um, so this this whole idea of... Um, to what is your abundance linked and and what do you look for to provide uh threshing floors piled with grain vats overflowing with new wine and oil whatever that may look like in your context could be a, an appropriate sermon then too the other thing that stood out to me was that focus and Joel on worship is really intriguing the uh not only uh the parts that you mentioned Rolf, but also the part of the big problem of the plague was that there wasn't enough food for the priests to offer sacrifices to, mm. to make their offerings in the in the temple, and that's kind of the heart of the problem. So that when when things are restored, that's part of uh, the good news here is that now worship can get back to its its normal uh, normal routine. And uh, in a way, it seems like that might be tied a little bit to this little bit of a theme here of the shame and the uh, removal of shame. Maybe we can talk about that. That's another sort of linguistic thing going on here is the repetition of the the word bosh for shame. Maybe a good way in would be to talk a little bit about the understanding of shame in the Old Testament and how it's both similar to and different from what we think of shame now. I think of a lot of like Brene Brown, and she's really popularized this idea of shame and the uh, negative aspects of shame in a way that maybe was and maybe wasn't entirely operative in a text like this. Yeah, I, I don't know that it's really possible for for a modern people to understand what it was like to live in an honor and shame society like the ancient world was. Um, like both ancient Israel and ancient uh, the Roman Empire was built on honor and shame, that honor and shame were a currency. Um, and, and we still have dimensions of it, of course, but it was it played such a, a, a much bigger role in a kinship-based society. Essentially, that you're sort of it's sort of like your honor and shame score. The closest thing we might have to it is a credit score. Um, mm -hmm. But... The, but um, so that you know, if you have a if you have a, a a high credit score, and you go uh, to apply to rent an apartment, um, mm -hmm. you're more likely to get the apartment. And if you have a low one, you're you're less likely, or you might have to put more money down, which is of course harder for you if you have a lower lower credit score. So you, literally, you can live in better neighborhoods with a high credit score. Or you're forced to live in in worse places with a low credit score, and that's sort of the way that your honor and shame score were in the ancient world. Uh, it, but everybody knew it you know, in town um, every, and, and societies uh, uh, 
could experience this. And so I think the idea here is, of course, um, that the entire people has experienced some massive exp uh, experience of shame uh, that they're dealing with. Um, and I, I think that that does kind of resonate um, with some nations and, uh, and states today uh, or, yeah. or peoples uh, that, that, have, that have been subject to some great shame. And to the idea of having that removed, your junior high kids will understand this better than anybody else, right? Because yeah. the, because junior high is just one massive economy of shame, um, <laughs> right? Um, but um, what, one of my one of my teachers was taken into uh, his doctoral program, basically on the, uh, a version of academic probation. This was Harvard, Frank Moorcross, and uh, so he, so he had to sort of at the end of every semester, you know, at first, you know, be sustained in the program by a vote of the faculty or something. I don't exactly know how it went, but he wrote a paper in which he actually argued against something Cross had written. And Cross said to him, thank you. Um, you're, you're right. Um, and your status in this program is of no worry. Wow. And with, just with that, <laughs> he was, that was removed, Right. That sort of sense of being a second-class citizen uh, was removed, and uh, to, that sort of announcement is what God announces here to the people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That whole that whole story lifts up that idea so perfectly, which is almost um, intensified in verse twenty-seven because of the the power with which. God identifies with Israel and the really intimate language that's brought up there, you know, you know, in the, in the midst, in the torso, you know, Kerev is like your, your middle of your body. So right in the midst of you, and then that is linked to the next phrase, which is starts with, which means, and I am, Adonai and I am, Adonai, your God. Like there's, there's no clearer proclamation that's happening here of, of how this shame is being lifted and chased away. You know, if you've got God in your guts, there's no shame that could touch you. Yeah. That God is in the midst of the people. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Which makes you think that probably the, the source of the shame was the sense that God had abandoned them. If mm. this sort of locust plague had come through and, and decimated their crops, at least in the sight of the, the peoples around them, there's uh, either their God is not powerful or their God is angry with them and has abandoned them. Mm. How shameful. Now God's saying, no, I'm going to restore you and there's going to be no more shame because it'll be clear. You shall know that I'm in your midst. Yeah, and I think I think what I love so much about this pericope for all that it doesn't include two awesome verses at the very beginning of it is that it starts to lead us into a different understanding of this next section which is so famous because it's, you know, it comes from Peter's mouth in Acts 2. It's, you know, gorgeous text which leads directly out of this lifting of shame. Um so I think this really helps us kind of get our heads and hands around that a little bit more. Um, but before we get too far into talking about Peter, Rolf, could you talk a little bit about uh, Ruach in the Old Testament, this idea of spirit? You know, kind of where, where else does it show up? What else does it usually signify? 
Well, I mean, it signifies the agency and activity of God. The spirit hovers over the face of the deep in Genesis 1-1, and then that's the moment of creation. And then the spirit falls upon Israel and different places and, and leaders. Uh, in, in this case, I think that, you know, obviously the, the most important thing to note is what I would call the very democratic domain of the spirit, that it's both sons and daughters shall prophesy. Old and young shall prophesy and, and shall dream dreams and see visions, male and female slaves. So, I mean, you're getting in some ways um, before Paul says in Galatians, you know, um, slave and free, male and female. You're getting that, that here, that the gift of prophetic identity isn't limited to a specific class of men, but it's um, men and women, old and young, even on slaves, so slave and free. And so... You know, that's that's been the most important, I think, aspect uh, of the text. Yeah, I read, uh, you know, sons and daughters, men and women, young and old and all classes. And I think, well, that's as it should be. But this is coming in a in a context that is so structured in a patriarchal and uh, age delimited and class delimited society. So this is more than they could have ever expected as far as what God is doing in the pouring out of the spirit here. It harkens back to the early days of Israel when you had prophetesses like Miriam and Deborah uh, before really the descent into madness of, of the people at the end of the book of Judges. So it's it's um, pointing back to a renewal of the golden age, really. Well, and speaking of the golden age, let's talk about the uh, great and terrible day of the Lord that will bring blood and fire and pillars of smoke and the moon into blood. Sound Sound like the golden age to you? Yeah, it's, you know, it's... It's probably a separate oracle or a later intrusion into the text. Interpolation, isn't that the word they use? The The good news in the text comes at the end, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape. And among them shall be the survivors that call, those that call on the Lord and those whom the Lord calls. Which would make sense, the, the particular signs that are spoken of there, those moftim of blood and fire and a pillar of smoke. That all recalls the, the Exodus narrative as well, where there's signs that God's performing as a, a part of the deliverance of God's people. And including locusts in that story, too. Yeah, that's right. I suppose that uh, in terms of lining up with um, the, a Christian lectionary, the fact that um, this part about the... Um, the darkness and the moon to blood and all that stuff and the great and terrible day of the Lord does kind of resonate with some of the uh, material you start to get at the end of the lectionary year in the RCL when you start to get the apocalyptic material, in this case from Luke. And this is, I mean, October 27th, this is right before Halloween that if people aren't <laughs> preaching the Reformation text, this is uh, in some ways a really great opportunity to kind of enter into that, you know, whole context of the rapture and the end times and the signs. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's a, it's a moment in our cultural consciousness at the end of October, which is sort of pregnant with that, uh, that thought or that possibility of, mm -hmm. of, um, you know, the moon turning into blood and all that stuff. So it, it might not be a bad idea for preachers to kind of live into that a little bit and enter into that moment where the rest of your people might be as well. <laughs> Now, I don't know a whole lot about ancient Near Eastern omen reading and whatnot, but uh, when I 
see the sun turn into darkness and the moon into blood. Those are both ways of talking about eclipses, which were kind of signs in the heavens of, of a momentous occasion of something, some big change that was occurring. So it might not be sort of end of the world type of apocalyptic as much as um, the pouring out of the spirit of God and the renewal of their agricultural system. This sort of new vision of hope is, is a, it's a, it's a watershed moment that they should look for being confirmed by even signs in the skies Mm. as as sort of this is a big thing the one place i think it tips towards the more end times is that idea of the great and terrible day of the lord that's the catchphrase in in the minor prophets and in the book Mm -hmm. of the 12 for sort of tipping towards that end times but i like what you're saying too which is kind of taking this interpolation and really making it live into its literary context which is talking about renewal and the spirit being poured out so yeah i could definitely see that too Okay, but what's so terrible about the day of the Lord? Well, it will come with blood and fire and pillars of smoke. (laughs) Yeah, originally, I think historically, at least one argument is that it derives ultimately from the year of Jubilee and then came to symbolize the day in the future when God would act on Israel's behalf. Mm -hmm. And then Amos comes along and says, the day of the Lord, it's not good news for you, it's bad news. The day when God finally acts is actually going to be bad news Mm -hmm. um, for you. Um, And and Joel seems to pick up on that. You know, the day of the Lord is near. It is a day of destruction, you know, Mm -hmm. so he's picking up on that. But then he sees beyond it. So he's again saying, but it's also then the beginning of hope. It's the beginning of the, the remnant that will be um, those survivors that will persist to whom the Lord will be faithful. Well, and I think that's what's so important. That's why I was starting to talk about the rapture is because oftentimes when we talk about the end times with um, book series like Left Behind and, and movies that picture the end of the world, it's this really terrible, scary thing. And I think that's a misunderstanding of what this I, apocalyptic literature or um, texts of the Bible, which have kind of an apocalyptic flavor like this one, what they're ultimately trying to do is they're ultimately trying to bring a word of hope uh, to people who are suffering. This text here is not properly apocalyptic uh, mm-hmm. from an Old Testament perspective, but what it is is it has to do with um, the future, and it's certainly not about the end of time. I mean, that, right? Mm-hmm. That is, I think that's one thing to be clear: is the day of the Lord here is not referring to the day of what what Christians would call the second coming or the end of the world. It, it it's referring to it the day when God will act decisively a day when God will act decisively in the near future. Mm-hmm. Probably makes a boring sermon <laughs> right? to, 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 to do that level of te- teaching, unless that's the kind of preacher you are. There you, go. you know what I mean? Um, although you can do that pretty quick. You know, you can talk about that. This is law and gospel. The day of the Lord is both law and gospel. It's law. There will be judgment and it's going to be terrible, uh, but it's also good news because God will be faithful. There will be people who call on God and people whom God calls. I think finally that's really the good news in this text for today. Uh, among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls, right? Which links back then to the pouring out of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. 
that spirit is still being poured out on people today, calling them not to clergy vocations, but rather to holy vocations. All every vocation that's legitimate is equally holy, you know, um, whether that is to be a banker or uh, a farmer or a uh, tax accountant. <laughs> yeah, an accountant, absolutely. Let me tell you, my accountant. Yeah, I she know. does holy work. <laughs> <laughs> Well, at this point, I think let's maybe talk a little bit about uh, preaching pitfalls or sermon angles that we might take this text into. Rolf, do you have any insights? Well, I, I just I just gave the first one, uh, right? You could emphasize the doctrine of vocation, that all people are called and that the Spirit is poured out on everyone in baptism. Uh, I think the other one is to go back to the, to the whole concept of... Um, fertility and the abundance of creation and uh, that of God's renewing and of the face of the earth and that the spirit, the same spirit that is poured out upon us in baptism and that calls us continues also to provide and that there's enough. Yeah. And if you do preach that, you definitely want to go back and get those first verses uh, before mm-hmm. the beginning of the lectionary selection because yeah, it really right. emphasizes that uh, the, the whole creation is impacted by this, uh, by this move of God. How about you, Tim? What'd you come up with? Well, I had a, a couple ideas, uh, uh, none of which were really knock it out of the park sermons. Um, <laughs> it's great, great endorse, self endorsement right away. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, a couple themes that I thought I might run with if I were trying to create a sermon from this text. One is looking back at the first chapter, actually, and and the connection between all of this and the worship of God. How the plague and the locusts, all of that was an obstacle to proper worship in Joel's context. In spite of that, God is, in our section, providing what's necessary for that worship to resume, for the people once again to discover that God is in their midst. Mm-hmm. And and so uh, it would be worth kind of pondering a bit, like what are the obstacles to worship? What are the things that get in the way of our worship? And some of them might be as as mundane and you know work a day as the struggle to get food on the table, and things like that. Uh, so beginning to look for where is the provision of God that makes makes a way for the people to say to praise the name of the Lord, to to eat their fill and praise the name of the Lord who has dealt so wondrously with you, as it says in verse 26, that you would know that I'm in, in the midst of the people, in the midst of Israel. Uh, so that's, that's one direction uh, I might go. I had something else, too. Maybe just the, um, the context of traumatic experience, how Joel is able to envision a future that is not completely controlled by the present trauma. Oh, nice. Uh, that's, of course, a tricky place to go as a preacher because you don't want to accidentally minimize what people are experiencing. But there is something about the God-given prophetic imagination to be able to see a reality that's hard to see with the naked eye. Mm. There, there might be an angle in there as well, I think. I uh I went I went a couple different directions with it. My first suggestion would be if you're in a congregation that's not preaching on the Reformation texts, I might live into that first half of it. Um pick up verses 21, 22 and preach through verse 27. This is the context for when Peter picks up Joel that we never get to hear. God's not only call going out and God's 
word and spirit going out, but God's abundance going out too. And that might get usually missed on Pentecost. So so really kind of dive deep into that and, and set the stage for yourself for the next um, Pentecost and for your people. Now, I think the other the other thing that struck me um, came out of the context where I'm at right now. I'm in Atlanta, I'm in the South, and I'm surrounded by uh, a fair amount of people who really lean into that belief about the rapture and the end times. So if your people in the text are hearing it that way, it might be important to speak to that in some way in your sermon. What is their fear? What are what are the fears of your congregation around the end times and the rapture? And how could you use this text to speak a word of hope into that situation? Um, so that would be those would be the couple of angles that I would I would go with for that. On that second uh, angle, I think that's right to emphasize that that this is all that this has already been realized. That the great I mean, from a New Testament perspective, this has already happened. Yeah, you know, nice. that is the the darkness has already descended, in, you know, in the darkness of Good Friday, the sun turned to darkness and that the Holy Spirit then has already been poured out, as Peter says that. So um, so that rather than try to um, untangle a, a dispensationalist reading uh, to say that biblically this has already happened. Yeah, well, that's uh, that sounds like a great place to end our conversation. It's always awesome to talk with you, Rolf. And, Likewise. Uh, Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, of course. It's been a real privilege. Now remember, dear listeners, that you can find links to Dr. Jacobson's work on our website, firstreadingpodcast.com. And we need to give Creative Commons credit to Kai Engel for the music during Rolf's reading from Joel. Well, we hope you'll all join us next time on First Reading. Until then, I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. Happy preaching. Want to talk about it, Rachel? Or you want uh, me to? No, the only the only thing that comes to mind for me is when I was learning Hebrew. The way I remember uh, remembered shame <laughs> was that it was bullshit. It sounded like bullshit. I don't know if we can keep that in the podcast <laughs> or not, but that's just how I could remember that it was shame.